And please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel 21. Last week in our time together, we, we spoke of a transcendent theme. Uh, several transcendent themes we spoke of at the beginning and then uh, parked on a particular transcendent theme that any attempt to fulfill divine expectations must be accomplished within the context of proper motivations. Romans 14 puts it, whatsoever is not a faith is sin, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. We recognize the need to be compelled by a love for God into the actions that we commit. And we understood uh, from that that Ahimelech had done right in giving to David the showbread and allowing him to eat of that bread. We talked about Jesus' uh, illustration in Matthew chapter 12 in that regard. This week I would like us to consider what we might call another transcendent theme in Scripture, a subset of a principle that we often call the sowing and reaping principle. The sowing and reaping principle states that what we sow, we reap. That we always sow what we reap, we always sow more than what we reap. And as we consider this principle, there's a subset of this principle that we're going to understand this morning. The sowing and reaping principle, the subset being this, that sin has consequences. And the statement that we're going to come back to in our application today is that sin has consequences. You can choose the sins that you commit, but you can't choose the consequences that those sins will bring about. You can choose the sin, but you cannot choose the consequences. And we're going to understand that a little bit this morning. Let's briefly review what occurred last time we were together in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. David came to the high priest Ahimelech. Ahimelech was very concerned because David came without any attendants, without any guards, without anyone. He's very um, suspicious of this, concerned by this. And in what we can only call a blatant lie, David tells Ahimelech that he was on an errand for the king, and it was a secret errand, and it was an errand that needed to be taken in haste. And because he was so fast in making this happen and it was so secret, he didn't bring any of his attendants. He left them back behind him and he came to, to, to this part of this errand in secrecy. He needed some bread for him and his men. He, he needed some other things we'll talk about today. And that the king had sent him with such haste that he didn't have time for any of this and that there's great secrecy so no one could be there. A lie. The king had done nothing of the sort. In fact, David, we know, is fleeing for his life, right? From the king. He is now in exile from the king. And as we understand this, uh, we, we recognize Ahimelech gave him the bread. He helped him out. He said, okay, you're helping the king. You're in need. I'm going to give you this bread. I'm going to do what is most needful. Uh, according to the character of God and under the law, I'm going to give this to you. David takes the bread and he goes. And we pick up in verse 7 now as we continue this tale. And the scriptures tell us in verse 7, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. This would be at the temple, at the tabernacle, excuse me, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the most chief of the herdsmen that belonged to Saul. So the scriptures cut away from the interaction between David and Ahimelech for a moment to introduce another man. He is the chief herdsman of Saul, 
and he is a man named Doeg. Now, the text tells us that he was detained before the Lord, which implies that there was some ceremonial reason why he was being forced to remain at the tabernacle. Perhaps it was ritualistic. Perhaps there was some uncleanness and he was waiting until he was clean. Perhaps some vow. We don't really know. All we know is that this well-known and loyal servant of Saul, uh, who would not necessarily normally be at the tabernacle, was there that day. And he saw David speaking with Ahimelech. And to some degree, it would appear he understood what was going on. He heard, maybe he heard the conversation. He definitely noticed that Ahimelech gave David some things. Now, the text also mentions that he was an Edomite. Uh, there seems to be no particular relevance to this revelation in the text. An Edomite having come from the family of Esau instead of, of Jacob. And so he was not a natural born Israelite. It's possible that as an Edomite, he was seeking to proselyte into the nation of Israel. And perhaps that's why he was at the tabernacle. He was performing his vows in order to become an Israelite proselyte. It's possible that that may have been why he was there. The text doesn't make it clear, but it does mention that he was Saul's herdman. It does mention that he is an Edomite and he saw David there that day. Now, David's final order of business was to see if Ahimelech could give him a weapon. And we see this in verses 8 and 9 of 1 Samuel 21. The text tells us, David said unto Ahimelech, and is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business, he's still perpetuating this lie, the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. And if thou wilt take it, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it me. So, uh, once again, this must have been very suspicious, highly irregular, but Ahimelech is choosing to believe David here. He's an honorable man. Uh, he, he is an influential man. He's choosing to believe David. Not only did David come without food, he came without a weapon. And for a captain of thousands in the military, that's pretty strange. But Ahimelech says, okay, well, we've got the sword of Goliath here. Remember, David had taken the sword of Goliath and, in fact, the head of Goliath and Goliath's armor as well. And, and he... Put the armor in his tent, the scriptures tell us. Well, at some point, the sword quite clearly made it to the tabernacle. A testimony of God's victory, a testimony of God's faithfulness. The sword remained there and it was wrapped in a cloth. So it's not as if it was prominently displayed or anything of the sort, but it was there. Well, David, um, like that, you know, it was probably a pretty nice sword. Uh, Goliath was a warrior and a warrior from, from a very, very young age. He probably had a nice sword. David says, I can handle that. I'll gladly accept that sword. So he takes the sword. He's got the bread. He's got the sword. And now he is moving on his way. Verses 10 through 15 uh, tell us that David goes into the land of the Philistines and namely the region of the Philistines called Gath. We'll read that together. The scriptures tell us in verse 10. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Interesting phrase, isn't that? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. 
And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then Achish said unto his servants, Lo, ye have... Uh, ye see, the man is mad. Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I need of a madman? That ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David leads the borders of Israel and he goes into the land of the Philistines. We mentioned specifically Gath and he's going to the king of Gath, a man named Achish. And um, we find in Psalm 34 that his um, name is also called Abimelech, and we'll talk about Psalm 34 a little bit more next week. As it had likely been several years since the defeat of Goliath, it looks as though David was hoping at this point that they really didn't know him anymore, the Philistines, that maybe that generation of warriors, many of them having been killed, right, um, would have passed, and, and maybe David wasn't a big deal. Maybe they wouldn't recognize him or, or, or something to that effect. We're not exactly sure what was going through uh, David's mind. It does seem as though he was looking for political asylum here, though, that he was hoping that he could go before the king and say, I'm an I'm a, a exile from Saul. I'm seeking political asylum and that, that Achish or Abimelech would give him that request. Such is not the case, however. David comes into the land and the king's servants immediately understand who this guy is aren't you and they call him the king of the land rumors had even been going into the philistia at this point that david was going to be king or that he deserved to be king or he'd been anointed to be king or or somehow he was greater than the king you're the one that that they say saul has slain his thousands and david his ten thousands we know you we know this guy and this makes david very afraid whereas before he was perhaps hoping to get political asylum now he became perhaps concerned that he was going to be held as, as a bartering tool or that he was going to be put in a place where he was going to have to um, earn the favor of the king through destroying people in Israel. And we'll see that, that actually will, will be the case several years down the road. And so we're not exactly sure what David's fear was here. My, my thought is probably that he, he fears now that he's going to become a bartering tool that he is going to be sold back to Saul or given back to Saul as an enemy both of Saul and the Philistines. But we can't really know. Whatever the reason, David um, is pretty afraid here. He might even be afraid that they're going to hold the grudge against him for killing many Philistines and that they would kill him. That doesn't seem likely though because even if he were a madman, they would probably kill him if that were their thought. Whatever the case, he becomes afraid. He decides to get out through deception. So he pretends to be a madman, man that is outside of a sound mind. He, he starts scratching at the door of the king's gate and at the, of the king's palace. He, he, allows, he starts drooling all over himself, and so you know, he's got slobber all over his beard, and he's scratching at the door, and he's just feigning as if he's a madman. And the king looks at him, and, and he looks at his servants, and he says, look, I don't need a madman. Uh, perhaps I wanted a trophy, perhaps a bartering tool, whatever, but what I don't need is a madman in my court. Get this guy out of here. So David is free to go. He convinces the king of this, and um, he gets out of there. And he's able to, to, to leave that situation, and he ends up leaving Philistia. And the scriptures tell us instead that he goes to the cave of Adullam. Let's read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22. David, therefore, departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam, 
And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And every one that was in distress and every one that was in debt and every one that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went thence to Mizpah of Moab. And he said unto the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. And he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the days while that David was in the hold. And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold. Depart and get thee into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Hereth. We see three different transitions here. David first goes to the cave of Adullam. And this would have been a, a, a cave well outside of Philistia, on the east end of Israel at this point. And he goes to the cave of Adullam. Adullam, uh, he, in history, was a man, also a people group, and a town. It's referenced in Genesis 38. It's referenced in Joshua 12 and Joshua 15. In the lowlands of Judah, right at the foot of the mountains to the south. And the scriptures tell us that there, when his family heard that he was there at the cave of Adullam, his family came to him. They came to be with him, his mother, his father, his brethren. Now, this would have been very important for David as well as for his family. You can imagine if Saul is hunting for David, David flees out of the land of Israel, and he's now in exile. A good strategy for the king would be get his family, right? If you can get his family, then you have a means by which to get to David. You can either say, I'll kill your family if you don't come, or you can kill his family out of revenge for the fact that he's not there. And so his family would have been in great danger. And them knowing this, they flee to him to this cave, and they all meet together in this cave. But David doesn't stay in the cave. Um, he, while he's there, not only does his family come, uh, he attracts a band of misfits. Um, People who were malcontents, those who for one reason or another had a civil problem in Israel, were unhappy with the kingdom as it was directed by Saul and were more than willing to take David's side and follow David. And we find that in fact, um, 400 men came to David, flocking to him, perhaps under some general understanding that he was to become king, perhaps only because he was a man like them who was out of favor with the government, but he was charismatic. He was a leader. Uh, he, was, he, he was one who men wanted to follow, and now he's in exile. And so these other people who were, were discontent, who um, had problems with the law, came to him. There's almost a Robin Hood feel here a little bit, right? That you've got your, your group of, of malcontents that are coming together and banding together under a leader. And certainly, we're not looking at the same reasoning, but that kind of a feel to it. Now you've got 400 men plus David and his family, and they're here because they're all outcasts politically for one reason or another. And the first thing David chooses to do is secure his family's safety. He can't be dragging his mom and dad around the countryside while he's fleeing from Saul in exile. So he goes to the king of Moab. The scriptures tell us he goes to, uh, to the city of Mizpah, the king of Moab, and he asks the king of Moab to give his family asylum, to protect his family for the entire time that he is in hiding. 
And the king is willing to do so. The king agrees. So the king takes David's father and David's mother, perhaps some of his brethren as well, perhaps not. And the scriptures imply, David implies here that he is going to be in a hold. That's what we see here in verses 1 through 5, that he asks the king of Moab to keep the family while he was in the hold. This was supposedly, we would assume, a place in Moab, some safe house. And David intended to just remain in a safe house in Moab until something, until, until the next step. Interestingly, however, one of the men in this band of 400 men was a man named Gad. And he was a prophet of God. What put him... In this, this group, we don't know why he was a political exile. We don't know. But he came and he, he joined himself to David. And this prophet tells David that he should not stay in the hold, in this safe house. But instead, he needs to flee back into the land of Judah. Now, this man Gad will eventually be established as David's prophet, David's seer. We'll see him throughout David's reign, even when he becomes king. Gad will be a man who it prophesies and who, who is, as it were, David's personal prophet, um, a prophet to David. But he tells him, don't abide in Moab, don't abide in the hold, get back into Judah. So David does so. He's trusting that Gad is, leading him, is, is the leading of the Lord, and he ends up in the forests of Hareth, which would, again, be in the south of Judah. In verse 7, we see... The, the picture go from David and we clip over to Saul here. And the scriptures tell us in verse 7, Then Saul said unto his servant that stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? So as our, our scene changes to Saul, he's in Gibeah and he has just heard that David has been cited. I think I missed verse 6 here. I did. Let me read verse 6 and then we'll read verse 7 again. When Saul heard that David was discovered and the men that were with him, now Saul abode in Gibeah under a tree in Ramah, having his spear in his hand, and all the servants were standing about him. Then Saul said unto his servants that stood about him. So Saul hears that David has fled. He hears that where he is now, he, he, he's located David He's still in Gibeah, and he says to his servants, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? There's a little bit of a bribe element here, telling his servants, look, I can give you wealth, I can give you power, but you need to follow me. In verse 8, he attempts to emotionally manipulate these servants through guilt. He says, all of you have conspired against me. And there is none that showeth me that my, son Jesse, uh, that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you that is sorry for me, or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait, as at this day. So first he says, can the son of Jesse, can David give you vineyards? Can David make you, can he promote you to power? No, he can't. I'm the king. And then he says, none of you care about me. You've all conspired against me because you didn't tell me 
that my son loved David, that he was conspiring with David. You didn't tell me that he conspired. And notice what he says here, to stir up my servant against me to lie in wait. He says, David's out there just waiting to kill me, and it's your fault, all my servants. It's your fault because you didn't tell me. He's a madman. Everyone knows he's a madman. They're probably just keeping their mouth shut here. They know that he's crazy. They know that David has done nothing wrong. And he's at the point now where he's just looking for blame. He's looking for pity. He's seeking to guilt people. He, he's also, however, seeking to bribe them. All of this is an expression of Saul's poor character, of Paul's poor leadership, and of Paul's, uh, Saul's, excuse me, poor character, Saul's poor leadership, and Saul's madness. And when you lead in a dishonorable way, you're going to dis, dis, uh, attract dishonorable people to you. People that don't care if they're betraying the innocent. People that don't really have a moral compass as long as they can be personally benefited. A leader of poor character will always have someone that can do his dirty work for him. Thus it is that there was one man, likely allured by the promises of wealth and honor, who found himself more than willing to betray David, to divulge what he knew about David in order to gain honor. And this man's name is Doeg the Edomite. Remember, Doeg was the man who saw David and who saw Ahimelech as they interacted with one another at the tabernacle. Now Doeg is back in Gibeah. He's back with Saul. And he's more than willing to tell the king what he had seen. We see this in verses 9 and 10. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him victuals and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Well, Saul immediately calls for this man, not just for Ahimelech, but also for all of the other priests that served in the tabernacle. He says, bring all the priests, all that are of Ahimelech's household and bring them to me. So the priests, they were ministering in the tabernacle and they came to stand before them. And we read this in verses 11 to 13. The king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob, and they came, all of them, to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, thou son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here am I. Here I am, my lord. Excuse me. And Saul said unto him, Why have ye conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse, in that thou hast given him bread and a sword and hast inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as at this day. Saul accuses Ahimelech of conspiring against him in his support of David. And notice the final words of accusation. Saul is convinced that David is out there seeking to kill him. He's convinced that David is seeking a violent overthrow. David, of course, we know has done nothing to insinuate this. But this is Saul's mindset. So he says, Ahimelech, by supporting him, we, I know that you're in league with him, that you inquired of the Lord for him, that you gave him bread, that you gave him a sword. You're guilty. You've done this. Well, we know what transpired between Ahimelech and David. We know that Ahimelech did what he did in the innocence of his own heart. We know that his actions were with the understanding that David was serving the king. And we know that Ahimelech was simply trying to do what he thought was best here. He had no animosity toward the king. He had no thoughts of conspiracy with David. 
And Ahimelech responds this way. He responds in innocence. He truly knew nothing of what had transpired between Saul and David. He says this in verses 14 and 15. And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in thine house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me, let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor all the house of my father, for thy servant knew nothing of all this lesser more. He says, look, David is your son-in-law. David is the chief of your armies. David is an honorable man. Why would I not believe him? Why would I fail to, to give to him? Why would I think that he was running to overthrow the kingdom? There's nothing that would lend to that. He says, everything that I did, I did in innocence. I knew nothing of the events of, of the animosity that was between you and David. And he, he answers in his innocence. Verse 17 tells us Saul didn't see it that way. The king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, thou and all thy father's house. And the king said unto the footmen that stood about him, Turn and slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priests of the Lord. See, the servants know that what's going on here is not right. They would have been naturally resistant to killing priests. Uh, that, that's the Lord's priest. They would have been naturally resistant to that. But the fact that, they, that Ahimelech says that, they did it in, that, that he helped David in innocency, that he knew nothing of the conspiracy, and the fact that the people already know that Saul's gone a little crazy here, they're not willing to stand before God and answer for killing the Lord's priests. But Saul would not be deterred. And we read this in verses 18 and 19. And the king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and fell upon the priests and slew on that day fourscore and five persons that did wear the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and sucklings and oxen and asses and sheep with the edge of the sword. So Doeg had already proven himself to be a man without integrity, without character. And Saul again turns to him to do his wicked deeds. Wicked leaders can always find men to do their wicked deeds. And the scripture tells us that four score and five, a score is 20. That's 85 priests were slaughtered on that day. And Doeg didn't just stop there. He killed all those priests. And then he travels back to the city of Nob where the tabernacle is and he kills all the women, all the children, all the infants. He kills everything that's living. He kills the oxen. He kills everything that he can find on that day. Only one man escaped the slaughter of innocent blood on this day. We find this in verses 20 and 21. The scriptures tell us, One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. Abiathar runs to David. We don't know how old he is here, but he says, this is what happened today. Ahimelech stood before the king. The king had them all killed. Doeg is the one that did it. 
And then he came back to, to, the house, to, to the city and he killed everyone in the city of Nob. Verse 22 and 23, the scriptures tell us, David said unto Abiathar, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Abide thou with me. Fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life. But with me thou shalt be in safeguard. David says this phrase, I have occasioned the death of all the persons in thy father's house. Now, often when something, when a tragedy happens, one of the, the stages of grief is blame. And so people have a tendency to blame themselves for things that were out of their control. And you would look at them and say, you know, this, you, this wasn't your fault. How could you have known these things happen? You can't control others. But in this case, in this case, David is absolutely right in his assessment. He did occasion the slaughter of all of these people. But here's the thing. It's not that he intended to see Ahimelech and his entire family killed. But he told a lie. And as he passed this lie along to Ahimelech, the nature of the lie occasioned a circumstance that led to the death of all of these people. Let's break this down together as we apply. What is a lie? A lie is when a person intentionally misrepresents the truth by giving false information. When a person intentionally misrepresents the truth by giving false information. Now, this is a little bit different from what we would say, uh, the concept of deceit. Deceit is when a person intentionally misrepresents the truth by withholding information necessary to, to properly understand. So a lie is when you intentionally give false information. Deceit is when you intentionally withhold needful information in order to come to an understanding of the truth. Either way, it, the, the intent is that the truth would be misrepresented. When David came to Ahimelech on that day, Ahimelech was naturally concerned about the unique conditions of David's arrival. He had no one with him. He had no food. He had no weapon. He was asking for help, and this was simply not normal. Now, David, of course, came up with a lie in order to explain this. I'm on the secret errand for the king. Uh, we, I had to leave in haste. All of these things, all of this lie that he presented to Ahimelech in order to get Ahimelech to give him what he felt he needed. David blatantly lied. And so Ahimelech, assuming that David was a man of honor and integrity and can't think of any reason why David would tell him a, a, a lie, helps him, probably thinking that due to, um, due to what David had told him, he was not only helping David, but in fact he was honoring the king. While in fact, by helping David, he was directly opposing the will of the king. Ahimelech made a decision with the information that he had. And the decision that he made ended up costing him his life. Now, by David telling this lie, David deprived Ahimelech of the liberty of making an informed decision. Follow me on this. Had David told the truth to Ahimelech, the high priest may have decided that by helping David, he would have been in risk. He would have been at... It would have been too much of a risk for him. And by extension, those he loves... And so he may not have done it. He may not have given him the bread. Or 
he may have still done it, right? He may have said, hey, David, I believe you're on the right here. I understand what you're doing. This makes sense. Take the bread and, and get out of here. He may have still done it. But by denying Ahimelech access to the truth, David stripped from Ahimelech his right to make an informed decision. And thus he took away Ahimelech's right to choose whether or not to risk his life for David. David, by default, elected Ahimelech to risk his life by telling him a lie. And he took from Ahimelech the right to make that decision for himself. Had Ahimelech known the situation and chosen to help David, it would have been a calculated risk. And as he stood before Saul, if he'd have been taken by Saul, he would have been able to stand before Saul knowing that he had made this decision and that this was the consequence of his decision. But that's not what Ahimelech, that's not what happened. Ahimelech stood before Saul, a 100% innocent man, even though he had gone against the king because David had elected him to risk his life by his lie. David took from Ahimelech the privilege of making that decision and David thus risked Ahimelech's life without Ahimelech's knowledge. So David was correct when he said that he occasioned the death of Ahimelech in his household. Now, David didn't do the killing. David wouldn't have asked for the killing. David didn't even know that Saul would have done this necessarily. But David's lie positioned these men for death without their knowledge and against their will. And ladies and gentlemen, we began our sermon today by saying we can choose our sin, but we can't choose the sin's consequences. And most often, these consequences will extend beyond just you. Your sin touches the lives of others. Your sin will touch the lives of the ones you love, even perhaps people that you've never met. You may think that your choice affects only you. This is just my decision. I'm sinning. It only affects me. But more often than not, you would be very wrong in thinking that. There are two principles I would like us to consider in the context of these concepts this morning. And the overriding concept is you can choose your sin, but you can't choose its consequences. The other overriding concept is that your sin doesn't just affect you. And I'd like us to think about a couple of statements. Number one, consider with me the relationship between responsibility and effect. The more power, the more authority, the more responsibility a man is given the more people are affected by your decisions, whether good or bad. The sinful actions of a pastor don't just affect the pastor, do they? The sinful actions of a pastor affect the entire church that is following him. When a pastor commits adultery, it is very possible that he could deeply damage the spiritual lives of, of those in his church. He may completely collapse the church. When a pastor becomes an angry man, he may teach his congregation by proxy that it's okay to be angry. Or maybe teach them that spiritual inconsistency is acceptable. Or maybe alienate those who see his spiritual hypocrisy. Even if we don't intend our sin to touch others, when we sin, and the greater our degree of responsibility, when we sin, it does affect others. Because the pastor is the leader, his sin will in some way touch the lives of those he leads. The same is true of a father. When a father sins, he is affecting 
the tenor of his family. Now, your family's not going to stand before God and answer for your sin, but your sin can affect their well-being. Your sin may, again, by proxy, teach them that it's okay to sin themselves. Your sin may make them comfortable in hypocrisy. Your sin may actually hurt them physically. And while in each one of these cases, those under one's leadership are still free to make their own decisions, just as Saul was free to make his decision and Ahimelech was still free to say no to David, just as Saul would stand before God and Doeg would stand before God and answer for their part in the sin, we as leaders can occasion spiritual or physical destruction through our poor choices. And I mentioned spiritual or physical destruction. In David's case, his lie to Ahimelech didn't cause Ahimelech and his family to stumble spiritually. In his case, he lied thinking this is just a lie. It's going to get me what I need. No one's ever going to know the difference. Doeg was there. Doeg gets to Saul. Saul kills Ahimelech and his family for it. Ahimelech didn't even know that David had lied, so it wasn't affecting him spiritually. In David's case, the lie led to Ahimelech's death. And the same can be said of the pastor, the father, the boss. Earthly responsibility is not to be taken lightly. When God places people in our charge, when God gives us positions of authority, it is with the expectation that we would take that position of authority and use it properly. And if we don't use that position properly, we betray God's word and God's expectations. We position people to fail in their lives spiritually. In fact, in, in the context of taking care of people physically, we read this in 1 Timothy 5.8. But if any man provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, he is worse than an infidel. Now in the context, in this context, it's speaking specifically of a man who would not care for his widowed mother. But the principle can extend to any responsibility that we have, spiritually or physically, among those whom we lead, that if we don't care for them, if we allow our personal sin to override the necessity of guiding and taking care of others, then we deny the faith. We stand in opposition to God. So consider the relationship between responsibility and effect. The more responsibility you have, the more you affect those below you with your choices. David was a leader of thousands. David was the king's son-in-law. David was a charismatic personality, and David was anointed to be king, and he led Ahimelech, and his sin cost Ahimelech his life. The second point, consider the necessity of learning obedience as a child. Due to the strong relationship between responsibility and effect upon others' lives, it is essential that obedience to God be learned young. When you're a child, your sin may still affect others. When a child lies and blames their sibling for something, that child gets away with the wrong and the sibling gets blamed. That child's sin has now affected his sibling. When a child chooses to disobey mom and dad and then something ends up getting broken, uh, that thing is lost for the whole family because it was broken because of a child choosing to do wrong. Our chore, poor, uh, a child's poor choices still can affect others. 
but to a much lesser degree than when we get older and you become a parent or a boss or a church leader. When you get older, the consequences of sin become much greater. They affect others in a much greater way. It's no longer just, I chose to lie and now um, someone else is going to get the spanking. Or someone else is going to get the time out or someone else is going to lose the privilege. Now it's, I chose to lie and 85 priests are killed. Parents, this is why it's imperative for you to lay a foundation for your children of choices and consequences. That our children understand that in this phase of life, when consequences are minimal, you need to learn how to do right. Because as you get older, the consequences of your sin, not just upon yourself, but upon those who you're responsible for, gets much, much greater. That's why it's important that you learn to submit your will when you're young. This is why it's essential that you learn that your, your choices don't just affect you. They do affect others. Your sins don't just affect you. They will affect those who are closest to you. Every week I sit across from people in the Wright County Jail. And I talk with inmates who have destroyed their lives. And the majority of them, to some degree or another, have drug issues. And oftentimes, drug issue is one of those crimes that's classified as a victimless crime, right? And you have people that say, ah, it's a victimless crime. And even, we just had, what, our president released 6,000 federal prisoners who had been involved in victimless crimes. But as I sit across from those inmates and I say, I ask them, tell me a little bit about you. And they say, well, I've got three kids, four, seven, and nine. And where are they now? Well, right now they're with uncle or aunt or grandma or sister or brother or foster care. Okay, and um, how long have you been here? I've been here a month. Okay, is this your first time? No, no, I've been in and out since I was 16. Okay, uh, what about the fathers? The father in the picture? Well, the fathers aren't in the picture with my kids. And it becomes apparent very quickly that their sin has not just affected them. That their choice to pursue these behaviors have affected their children, parents, siblings. That it has boiled over Thousands of dollars from family pouring into rehabilitation and attempts to, to get them on the right path. And yet these are called victimless crimes. But what we need to understand is when it comes to sin, sin has consequences. And while we choose the sin, we can't choose the consequences and we can't choose who those consequences touch. We can't. And we need to understand that our actions don't just touch us. They touch those that we love and those that follow us. Young people, you must understand this. You must understand that sin has consequences and that while you can choose your sin, you cannot choose your consequences and you cannot choose who those consequences affect. David's sin led directly to the death 
of 85 priests and their entire families. Likely hundreds of people dead because David chose to lie rather than tell the truth. Might it have still happened anyway? Yes, it might have if Ahimelech had chosen to, to help David anyway. But David withheld from them the capacity to choose through his sin. David found forgiveness with the Lord. We know that. And we always do find forgiveness with the Lord when we sin. If we will ask for it, we will confess our sin. And, and yet, the consequences still remained. And this needs to be a lesson to us this morning. A lesson to avoid sin. Because while we can choose the sin, we cannot choose the consequences that it will have upon us and others. It's a burden that grows as you get older. It's a burden that grows as you take on more leadership. One day your pastor will stand before God and he will answer for his actions, not just in the context of himself, not just in the context of him and his wife, not just in the context of him, his wife, and his children, but in the context of him, his wife, his children, and his church. Now maybe you're just at the you stage, but you've still got family that loves you. Maybe you're, it's you and a spouse. Maybe it's you, a spouse, and children. Maybe it's you, a spouse, and children, and a job, a, a business. Uh, maybe it's a, a position of leadership in some other capacity. As the responsibility grows, the accountability grows. If you're a child in this room, my exhortation to you this morning is that you would learn now to do what is right while the consequences are minimal. Because there's coming a day when they'll get much greater and you'll affect even more people from, with your sin. If you are a leader in this room, whether that's a father, whether that's a boss, whether that's a church leader, whether that's all of the above whether that's a husband. May I remind you that as a leader, your decisions affect even more people and that it is our responsibility to bear with the privilege that we've been given to lead. We'll answer for that. So as we close, let's take a lesson from David. Let's understand here, as David chose to lie, which is uncharacteristic for him, that even this uncharacteristic lie brought about tremendous consequences. Because sin has consequences. And if David could have chosen what those consequences would have been or even thought about it, he probably would not have thought that hundreds of people would die. But he couldn't choose his consequence. He chose the sin. He had no capacity to choose what would come about from it or to choose who would be affected by it. Let's close in prayer.